And you guys can turn to Matthew 18 is, is where we'll be picking up this morning. Um, there's, there's been, a, we've, we've already kind of started through this. There's kind of a continual thread that we see running through Matthew 18, which happens to be everybody's favorite subject of sin. Um, we all like to talk about that, right? Uh, sin is one of these things that um, it's a much bigger deal than, than we really think it is. It's what separates us from God, who is holy. It's, uh, it's what broke God's good creation. You can, you can point the line back to sin. Everything that's wrong in the world, everything that's wrong in our relationships, society, everything that goes on is a result of, of sin. And we're living in a time when people want to believe that there is no such thing as right or wrong, that there is no good or bad. Um, sin is being embraced, it's being called good, and, and it's not being dealt with. And yet God's word clearly tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of that sin is death. And so whether we want to acknowledge it or not, sin is the greatest problem we have. The mark that God has given is perfect holiness, right? You must be this holy to, to go on this ride kind of thing. It, it's, it's holiness. So it means God has even narrowed it down for us, which is kind of nice. He said, just Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So if you do that, you know, with complete consistency from birth until death, you know, you don't have a problem. <laughs> like, how are we doing with that? It's like, I remember the, the signs they have at work that say so many days since the last accident. If you were to put one of those up in my life for so many days since the last sin, I don't think I'd get a day. I don't think I'd, I'd have that, you know, my record wouldn't probably be, even be that. And I haven't even mentioned the problem of original sin, which is a whole other subject, but the point is this, sin is a much bigger deal than we think it is, and we're in a desperate situation. It's far worse than any diagnosis a doctor could, could bring, but here's where Jesus rides in on a white horse to save the day. He came to seek and save the lost. This is the greatest news that we have. He does this by going to the cross on our behalf. He pays the penalty for our sin, and then he credits us with his righteousness, and he willingly does this. He willingly did it and offers it as a free gift to anyone who will receive it by faith, and if you, if you received that gift, if you understood the cost and the price that he paid to give it to you, the way you feel about sin changes. I hate my sin now. I despise it because I know it's what nailed my Savior to the cross. He's, my sin is the reason he suffered and died, and, and so do you hate your sin? You know, I'm looking forward to this day when it's no longer a problem. Don't, don't you long for that day? So what we have right now is we know that Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin. He is saving us from the power of sin, but one day he will save us from the very presence of sin. And, and I, I long for that day. But until that day comes, we're in a battle. And we're seeing people that we love and care about sometimes not, not doing so well in that battle. We're seeing people today, you know, the, these new buzzwords in Christianity where people are deconstructing from their faith and walking away from the church. Now there's something called exvangelicals. These, these, are, these are things we, we read about and hear about. People that, that we care about are walking away from God, walking away from the church, walking away from faith. And it's heartbreaking to see people move away from God, is it not? Our passage this morning is one that I, I pray will, will bring you hope in your battle, and I hope that it will, it will also give you great hope for those that you've seen that maybe have wandered off and gone astray. So Matthew 18 is where we pick up in verse 10. Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, some of you guys, just in case uh, you have verse 11 in your Bible and you went, why did he skip that? Uh, Anybody? (laughs) We'll find out what Bible you're reading. Yeah, Uh, there's a reason for that. Um, The the, the verse 11 that some of you might have says, for the Son of Man came to save that which was lost. And this verse was not found in the older manuscripts. So if your Bible translates from the oldest manuscripts, it wasn't there. Uh, the one where there's the majority of manuscripts that came later that we have the bulk of, it is in there. My guess, most likely, is you know how when you're, you're studying your Bible, you read a passage like this and you go, oh, this is, this is talking about how Jesus came to save, and sa- you know, save, save the lost? I'll just leave it at that. Seek and save is what I'm trying to say, but I, I keep trying to put sin in there. Uh, yeah, go figure. That's a, whole other, that's a whole other thing right there. That was... <laughs> Anyway, we write in the margins of our Bible sometimes a little note, and I'm guessing that like in the older manuscript, somebody wrote a note, somebody else came along and went to copy and went, oh, that, that fits here nicely and slid it in there. That's my guess, but either way, it doesn't change what we're reading. It's biblical. It, it's found, that verse is actually found in Luke, uh, but that's what's going on. So in the previous section, verse 6, Jesus talked about those who cause one of these little ones who believe in him to sin. It's a really big deal to God because he says it would be better for that person to have a great millstone tied around their neck and to be thrown into the depths of the ocean than to actually cause one of these little ones to sin. So we see what a big deal this is to God. He goes on to acknowledge in verse 8 that the world is like an obstacle course with all kinds of minefields waiting to trip us up, you know, sins that we can fall into and, and we can get toppled over. So we need to be vigilant as Christians not to get tripped up. And then he starts out the section today with a warning not to despise any of these little ones who have been tripped up. Now, who are these little ones? Uh, David and Chad both covered this already, but it could be a child. We know that at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus brings in a child and says, you know, they said, who can be, who's the greatest? And he said, unless you become like one of these, you can't enter the kingdom. So could mean a, a child. It could be a new or immature believer, uh, or it could just refer in general to the spiritual children of God which would include anyone who comes to him for salvation. And I think this makes the most sense because when we come to God um, for salvation, we come in humility, we come in in complete dependence, just like a a child comes to their father um, when they have a need. So he starts out with this exhortation not to despise or condemn any of these little ones who who fall into sin. Well, why would he have to say that? Well, if you can imagine this, there, there are some Christians who might see another Christian fall and despise them for it. I know it's a hard, to, hard thing to picture, right? But it happens all the time, unfortunately. We sometimes have a difficult time differentiating between hating sin and hating those who sin, don't we? It's easy for us in our disgust to despise and to write people off. And, and when I begin to think that way, I have to quickly remind myself of a Savior who has every reason to do that with me every day and does not. So we need to have grace and hopeful compassion for those who are overcome by sin. And thank God that by his grace, it's not us in that spot. Because apart from the good grace of God, every one of us is capable of of falling. 
So we see God's amazing concern and attention and, and, and the care that he has for these little ones who falter when we read the, verse, the rest of verse 10, which admittedly is a really weird verse. So, so you, you know, I already read it, but I tell you, in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And this is one of those times when I wish that uh, the disciples would have pulled Jesus back and said, hey, what was that last part again? You know, what was, what was that exactly that you just said? Uh, it's weird. There are angels in heaven that... It says that these little ones, that's us, have angels in heaven who always see the face of God. Now, in case you're wondering, that's exactly where people get the idea of guardian angels from. This is the idea that each person, more specifically, each believer has a personal angel assigned to them to watch over them and to protect them. You guys have heard this, this idea before. Some of you guys might need more than one. You know, you know, you know who you are. Don't, <laughs> don't look around the room at anybody, but... Um, I, I just imagine the angels like getting assigned to somebody and being like, come on, really? You know, give me something. Can I have that guy over there? Now, the question is, of course, is this what this passage is clearly teaching? And I would say not exactly, um, at least not that we each get assigned our own personal angel. And, and I believe this for a couple of reasons. One, we see that the angels here are in heaven and they're focused on the face of God. They aren't looking at us, but God is. And this is better. <laughs> we, we may not have a guardian angel, but we have a guardian God. And I, I love this idea. Angels are not all-knowing, and they can't be everywhere at once. But, but God is all-knowing, and He can be everywhere at once. So I'd rather have them watching Him than trying to keep track of me. Um, we also see in the Bible that angels are often assigned to, to, to specific regions or nations. Uh, so, so the idea here is that they can keep track of maybe a lot at once. <laughs> they, they can multitask, perhaps. So one person that I read, a commentator, described it uh, like playing zone defense as opposed to man-to-man, perhaps. Um, so that's why they're looking at, at, at the one who knows and sees all, including everything that happens to you and me. So it's, it's like the angels are watching the face of God who's watching us, and if there comes a time when one of his little ones has a need, God gives a nod to dispatch an angel to take care of this thing. And this is fascinating stuff, isn't it? Um, Hebrews 1.14 tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, Christians. So they serve us. They minister to us. And then Hebrews 13.2 tells us that we can have an encounter with an angel without even knowing it. And I, I'm sure you guys have all heard these stories. I don't know what to make of them, but somebody gets in a, a car accident and they're, they're stranded by the side of the road waiting for the emergency vehicle to get there and somebody's there with them, comforting them, talking to them, helping them through the time. And then the emergency people come and they're like, hey, where did the person go that was with me? And they're like, there was nobody there. You were by yourself when I got, I don't know what to make of that stuff. It gives me, you know, it's like, it's weird. But, you know, and then I ask the question, why does God need to have ministering agents for Christians here on earth? Can an all-powerful God do it without him? And, and of course he can, you know, but I would think the angels probably ask God the same thing about us, don't they? Why do you need these people to, to glorify you, to spread your fame, and to make your gospel known? He doesn't, and yet he uses angels and he uses us to, to make his name famous. We both get the privilege of serving the most high God. I mean, how cool is that? Anyway, um, we may not get our own personal guardian angel assigned, but here's, here's the bottom line just to, to think about, to have hit home. With everything going on in your life and everything going on in the world, how, in, how cool is it, how important is it for you to know that God has, has kind of placed this angelic priority on your life? 
He cares about you that much that there are angels in heaven right now watching his face, ready to respond and come to our aid if God deems it necessary. Anyway, that just tells me that every child of God is extremely precious, very valuable. And this is the reason Jesus brings up these ministering angels, uh, to let us know that those who have fallen into sin shouldn't be despised because God sees them. God cares about what's going on in their life, and he's doing something about it. And if he cares about them, we ought to care about them too. Now, it, it's, this is where Jesus launches into a parable to further make his point, and, and it's worth noting that Jesus repeats the same parable in Luke chapter 15. But there he's um, responding to a group of Pharisees and scribes who are, are they're, they're mad because Jesus is, is receiving sinners and eating with them. So different scenario, but the same kind of principle applies. Don't despise those who have lost their way. Uh, don't despise those who have fallen into sin. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is what we're talking about. So in Luke 15, I'll read this one just so you can kind of see the, the, the difference, even though they're um, a little different, they're very similar. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he is found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Okay, so let's define the players in the parable. Uh, the first one is, is probably the easiest, right? Who is the, the shepherd? Jesus. You know, when in doubt, answer Jesus, right? Every, Sunday, every kid in Sunday school class knows that. Uh, you know, of course, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. The scriptures call him the chief shepherd. And of course, he has under shepherds. Um, he's given pastor just means shepherd. That's just, it's the same word. So he's given pastors to, to help guard the flock and oversee, you know, but this is, this is clearly, I think, talking about Jesus. And then the 99, who are these? Well, I, I believe the 99 are believers who are currently following Jesus or part of the flock that's under the shepherd's care. So we would view those who, who we see week in and week out on a regular basis, you know, at church, that kind of thing. And then, of course, who is the lost one? Uh, this would be any believer that's, that's gone AWOL, right? They've strayed, they've wandered off. Uh, th this could be physically, it could be spiritually. There's some people sitting here today that you've, you've wandered off, man. You've, you've gone, you know, somewhere else, even though you might still be sitting here physically. We're not always uh, here spiritually. And this could be any Christian at any given time. It's almost like we take turns, right? So it's like, all right, who's going to wander this month? It's like, all right, I got it. I'll do it. All right, I'll do next month. I mean, we shouldn't be that way, but, but we seem to take turns wandering, don't we? Okay, then the question comes up as, as far as uh, why sheep? Um, if you know your Bibles, you know sheep is the animal that God's people are, are compared to most often, right? The Lord is our shepherd and we are the sheep of his pasture. But, but why sheep? Why not something more impressive. <laughs> you don't see football teams putting sheep on the sides of their helmet generally, um, right? Although Oregon's not too far off, I'm just saying. <laughs> but at least ducks and beavers can be a little aggressive maybe, but uh, they don't generally strike fear into your opponent. Um, but if you've ever done any research on sheep, you will quickly realize that the comparison of a Christian to a sheep is not a compliment. Um, it's not a very impressive animal. People even use the term sheep today to describe those they don't respect much, right? And, and it's because 
the idea is that they will just blindly follow the masses without really thinking about the destination. And sheep do this. There was actually this horrifying story in Turkey about a, a flock of 1,500 sheep like in 2005. They were near a cliff and the, the shepherds decided to go have lunch. And one sheep went over the cliff and the rest just followed. That's what they do. Uh, the good news is the first one's created like a pillowy soft landing for the others. And so they, they didn't all perish. That's good. I know there's people that are wondering what happened. I know, I'm sorry. But this is exactly why we need a good shepherd. This is why we need somebody to care for us and to watch over us. Sheep are not especially smart. Um, they're very needy. They require constant care and supervision. One of the funny things about sheep that, you know, again, being compared to Christians is um, they, they will get cast or cast down, which means that they land on their back and they can't do anything about it. They just have to lay there, kind of flail their feet around, you know, bleeding, bleating, not with a T, sorry, I've already been graphic enough, uh, and crying until the shepherd comes in and has to pick them up and put them back on their feet again. <laughs> and some of us are going, that sounds familiar. I I, you know, you're just waiting, you know, Jesus, come help me again. And he comes over and just, there you go, you know, on your way. That's us. As the song says, we're prone to wander. Even though sheep are kept in a perfect environment with plenty of green grass, plenty of fresh water, they will eventually wander off if they're not being looked after. Um, there's a name, you know, they're, they're, this isn't good for, for sheep because they are a completely defenseless animal. Um, there's a name for sheep that don't have protection in the wild, right? Like lunch, pretty much, is what, what we have here. They're not aggressive. They're not intimidating. They can't growl. They can't, they can't, they have no claws. They have no teeth. They have nothing to ward off a predator except for the shepherd. So staying in the safety of the flock and under the watchful eye of the shepherd is really, really important. One could make the argument that there isn't anything that should ever draw us away from our shepherd because he's so good to us. Why would we leave his side? Why would we walk away from him? He's good to us. He provides for us. He protects us. He loves us. And yet we stray. And we see it all the time. And this is that, you know, the song that I mentioned um, is, is Come Thou Found. There's a line that says, yeah, I'm prone to wander, he talks about. He says, let thy goodness, like a fetter, like shackles, bind my wandering heart to you. Because he knows this, that he's prone. So he's saying, here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Do something to keep me from wandering, please. So what is it that, that causes Christians to stray and to wander? Um, there's a number of things. The first one I have written down is curiosity. I, I couldn't help but think of kids that are raised in Christian homes. They've, they've always known kind of this life, and, and they see the world, and, and they... They're, they're, they're curious. They want to know what's going on. And at some point, every, every child kind of has that crisis of faith moment where they need to not just rely on their parents' faith, but have their, their own relationship with Christ. And so our, our kids are continually influenced by the world and, and the philosophies and worldviews. And it's opposite of what God says. So there's a natural curiosity that takes place. And then there's, of course, a great deal of pressure that, you know, to fit in with the, with the cultural norms of the world. And so I wish there was a way for them to avoid this. You know, there's some kids learn by watching and some by doing. <laughs> and some people have to, to wander a bit. Um, but that's, that's one reason they stray. Another one is, is the idea of disappointment or disillusionment. Um, you lose somebody you love or something you love or, or you, you just think life isn't working out the way you thought it was supposed to and that maybe you're getting the short end of the stick and you get disillusioned and you get upset. And so much of this comes from this false idea of what you've been promised as a Christian. 
And this is why I, I hate the prosperity gospel. It's just this false gospel. If you've been promised a life of riches and ease and nothing but good health and, and no problems, and then, and then they come, you, you begin to question everything. Disappointment sets in, and you start to look elsewhere. Disappointment and disillusionment can also come from a negative church experience. I, I, I bet if I were to ask you know, for a for hand raise of, of who's had a negative church experience, every hand would go up. We've all had them. Um, negative experiences that are a result of false teaching in the church. Churches are filled with false teaching, and, and, and people buy into it, and then when they find out it's not true, again, disillusionment sets in. Or, or if you have a, a leader, a church leader that you've respected and, and looked up to, and then they fall, the same kind of thing happens. And it can also just happen from this, this thing we do in the church where we, um, we pretend like we're better than everybody else as opposed to just forgiven sinners, which is what we are. And so I'm, you know, our kids kind of had to go through this. Or we kind of gave them this idea that we're, we're the good people and the world, they're the bad people. And, and we had this, this kind of a us and them thing that we did. And then they got older and they went into the world and they were like, there's some nice people out here that are kind and, and there's some jerks in the church. What's, what's going on here? And this is a problem that we have. Uh, we, we get kind of this self-righteous thing going as Christians sometimes, and, and we forget that the best thing about us is Jesus. He's the reason that we're good, not us. We're just forgiven sinners. And this is why it's so important to always make Jesus the star of the show and the one that people focus on and not, not us. We need to be good ambassadors, but, but let's always keep Jesus front and center. Third reason I see people wandering away is just carelessness. Um, people stop prioritizing their walk with with Christ, their life gets busy and, and more important things just kind of get in the way and you start to do this thing. COVID gave everybody like the, the, the main, it's like it was a get out of church free card for a lot of people. They just thought, well, I don't have to go anymore. This is great. And they stopped coming. And uh, I found that when you stop going to church, you stop saturating yourself with the word of God. You stop being around his people and being accountable to other Christians. It doesn't take long at all. You are out in the wilderness by yourself. I mean, it's just a slippery slope. It happens so fast. And, and this is so important because the rhythms and the habits that we, we make and we get used to, they dictate the priorities that we make in life. They, they say it takes 30 days to form a new habit. And so that means the longer you go out on your own, apart from the church and apart from your relationship with the Lord, the easier it's going to get and the more numb you're going to become. So I would just encourage you guys, you know, you're all here this morning, so I'm glad, but make Christ your relationship with him, the time in the church, the serving in the church, all these things. Make them a priority. Don't let anything convince you that there's something more valuable or important for you to be doing. Because Sundays, at the very least, used to be that day we would set aside for the Lord. And, and now we don't even do that. It's just weird. Our, our society, businesses used to be closed on Sundays. Remember that? Now they're not. They didn't ever, they would never think about having kids sporting events on Sundays. Now it's like parents have to make a choice. It's a bummer, but that's the way it is. Our, our culture stopped making it a priority a long time ago, but, but we can't as Christians. So don't be careless and apathetic about your walk with God. Make it priority number one. And this goes along with the next one. Number four that I see is people um, wandering away is because of selfishness. Uh, there's this, this thing out there where people say, you need to make you know, yourself and your, your uh, happiness and this kind of thing priority number one. And so you go on this adventure to find your best life, and Jesus becomes secondary because he, he, he gets in the way of that. And the church becomes secondary. So um, this is the other one that we see. And then, and then the big one that is really just the kind of the big E on the I chart here is a desire to sin. This is why people wander. 
more than, you know, more than anything else, it just comes down to the fact that I want to do things that I know I can't do in front of the shepherd and in front of the flock, and I'm going to go do them. And so you head out to the pig slop, and we all do it. You know, we think I'll just go wallow over there for a while and see what that's like. And uh, more often than not, when I see somebody disappear and go away, it's like it, there's no mystery as to what's going on. Um, they've been lured away by the temptation to sin. So there's a sixth possibility that I, I hate to bring up, but it's, it's one that we have to just consider, and that is that you're not a sheep. If you don't want to be around the shepherd and you don't want to be around God's people, if none of this appeals to you and you, you always find yourself wandering and getting away, um, it could mean that. And in John 10, 26, Jesus says, you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So what's the point of the parable? What is Jesus teaching us? Um, the first thing I see in this parable that I love and, and it means so much to me is that one matters. Just one matters, right? It's hard to imagine going, God going on a rescue mission to save me. It's not like I'm the sheep that's going to you know, get, get in the blue ribbon when, in, at the fair kind of thing. It's like, I'm not, I'm not that great to come after. And if I'm a shepherd with 100 sheep and one goes away, I'm thinking, I still have 99. That's not too shabby, right? And especially, why risk the, the rest of the flock to go after one that doesn't even appreciate me? Didn't even appreciate my care. Didn't even really want to hang around. So, you know, good riddance, sheep. Good luck. That's, that's the way I think. And if this were just about business or profit and loss, that kind of thing, or, or just completely impersonal, I guess that would make sense. But, but we see God's motivation here. He loves his sheep. Some of you guys are pet owners and, and a, little, a little crazy about it, right? I mean, you might not understand sheep, but your dog goes missing. Oh, it's, it's on, right? You're going you're gonna to not do anything else until you find that. And, and for me, I, I just, my kids, I remember one time, um, we, we thought we lost our daughter. Um, she went missing. She was little in diapers. Um, she wanted to go out and play. We said, no, you got to take a nap. It was snowing outside, and uh, she disappeared. And we looked everywhere, finally called the police, and they came and found her. She went and hid in our closet and fell asleep under the clothes. That's where she was. But I remember that feeling of like, I have lost one of my kids, and I would not think of anything else until I found her. I mean, I had to do that. And this is, this is how God is with us. He loves you like that. If you're one of his little ones, the next thing on, you know, he will leave the 99 because one matters. And, and that brings us to the next point in this parable is that God pursues his own. In Psalm 100, we read that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. He has purchased the church with his own blood. He has adopted you at a great expense to himself. You know, we had talked about how expensive adoption is and all the red tape and how difficult it is. His cost more. He invested in you to that point to make you a son or daughter. If you go missing, he will find you. Like, I will seek you. I will find you. And I will save you. Right? He'll go Liam Neeson on you. Um, there's this song that, uh, that I don't like, mostly because of the title. It's called Reckless Love. We, we sing it at the church sometimes. We don't sing it here a lot. But uh, the first time I heard it, I got mad because it's like, my God is not reckless. You just picture God just knocking things over. And, you know, it's like, I'm reckless. He's not reckless. Don't, don't call him that. But then I hear the lyrics and it just like wrecks me, right? And this is this idea. He says, when, when one of my little ones goes missing, there's no shadow you won't light up. 
No mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down. There's no lie you won't tear down coming after me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God that chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you gave yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. He will pursue you if you go missing. Ezekiel 34 16 says, I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. This is what our God is like. Well, how does he do this? How does he pursue those who stray? Well, we already talked about the angels that are looking at his face right now. That's one way he can use them. He uses his Holy Spirit. He convicts people. You know, if you're, if you're one of his sheep, um, there will be a nagging, persistent conviction that you can ignore but cannot escape. Right? He will continue to hound you and hound you and hound you. And I love that. And this amps up when people pray. I believe that. When we pray, it, it, I believe the Spirit convicts even more. So that's one way. And then he uses his people. This is kind of cool. Again, God doesn't need to use us, but he does. We get to join the search and rescue team. Right? We get to be a part of that. So James 5.19 says, If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings, him ba- or brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So if you notice someone is missing, check in on them. This is a, this is a team effort for sure. Um, shoot them a text, give them a call, stop by their house to do a welfare check. Let them know that you love them, you miss them. It matters that they're not around. People need to hear that. Um, sometimes you might need to lovingly confront them. I am so grateful for people that have done that in my life when I needed it. Uh, sometimes all people need is a nudge. They know they need, to be, they need to be here. They know they need to come back. It's not a mystery to them if they're one of his little ones. So give them that nudge they might need. And then what about all those that we've reached out to and prayed for, but they still haven't returned? Uh, many of us have children and loved ones that we think about every day, pray for every day, uh, are longing to see them return. Um, I take great comfort in the next point. Jesus always gets his man or woman, right? Here's the thing. We know that Jesus came to do the will of the Father, correct? Um, Was there ever a time when Jesus failed to accomplish the will of the Father? No. I would say for him to not accomplish the will of the Father would have been sin, and Jesus is without sin. So listen to what he says in John 6, 39 regarding the sheep. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And then John 18, 9, of those you gave me, I have lost not one. (laughs) I love this. If one gets away, Jesus will have failed to accomplish the Father's will, and that is impossible. And even in our passage today, it ends with a statement that the Father's will is that none none of these little ones, not one of these little ones would perish. The Father's gone on record. So this means we're in good hands. Amen? John 10 says this, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. His sheep will be saved. It may take some time, but it will happen. Now, unfortunately, as I already said, we don't know who is a sheep and who isn't. 
And, and I don't know, even with some of the people that I, I'm concerned about right now, I don't know. And so one of the verses that gives me great comfort and hope is found in Philippians 1.6. I know you guys know this verse, but cling to it. It says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a work in you, a good work in you, will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And so this means that if God, if there's evidence that God has begun a work in somebody, he's, he's regenerated them, he's, he's caused them to be born again, he's, he's been working in them, he says he'll finish it, he'll complete it. Now, we can do it the hard way or we can do it the easy way. And we see a lot of people doing it the hard way. But I take great comfort in the fact that he will finish that work. It might not always look like he's pursuing people that have walked away, but he is. I wish God wouldn't allow us to stray. Um, I am looking forward to the day when I cannot. You know, people always talk about their free will, like it's this thing to hold on to. Take mine away and make me follow you. Bind my wandering heart to you, please, Lord. There's going to come a day in his kingdom when we will never stray, and I can't wait for that day. But if you've had loved ones right now that have wandered and, and you, you don't know if they're coming back, just pray and pray and pray that God will track them down and bring them home. And when that does happen, we see this in this passage, salvation brings joy and glory. I love Luke's account where he says this guy, he puts the sheep on his shoulders and he comes back and he tells everybody, I found the lost sheep. You know, let's throw a party. That's what we do. Now, I can think of many people that used to be a part of my life and part of the church that I've just seen vanish. They're gone. I don't know what's going on, but just like the prodigal son coming home, when we see them return, we open, openly accept them, receive them, and we want to throw a party. Matthew's section actually says there, there's uh, more rejoicing over the one that, that comes back than the 99 who stayed. That sounds kind of weird, but, um, but it, it's because of what's at stake. You know, We didn't know if they were coming back, and they did, but, but I wanted to say this and go on record. For, for the 99 that are here week in and week out and stay and, and don't wander, and you know what a blessing you are to us as pastors and what a blessing you are to each other in the church? that you're just boring, faithful Christians. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It means the world. You know, many Christians are too ashamed or too uncomfortable to return. And, and I would just encourage you, if, if you're a, uh, somebody that's wandered or uh, maybe listening or whatever, you know somebody that has, just swallow your pride and, and come home. All we like sheep have gone astray. And, and yet the Son of Man has come to save and seek the lost. This is good news. So do you know how fortunate we are to have God as our shepherd? I started out with this passage this morning, but, but I want to read it again because I want you to think about what this means, who God is and who you are and how much he loves us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I have no need of anything. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, thank you for this uh, psalm. Thank you for these promises. Thank you that you are a good shepherd. Lord, we know we're not the greatest of sheep, that we're, that we're no prize, and yet you have set your love on us and given your son for us to make us your own, your own possession. Thank you that you don't give up on us, even though you have every reason to. You do not, because 
of Christ. Lord, for those that have strayed, that have, that have gone wandering, that we, we're worried about right now, collectively, Lord, we just offer a prayer to you that you would seek them, that you would save them, and that you would bring them home. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.